so the conversation just kept going after last week's episode and Amy Lance decided to just record another episode with Liz. Thanks, Liz, so much for staying for another entire episode. I wasn't able to stay for this, but uh, Amy, take it away. We are so excited to have another week with Liz Gatlin of Southern Athena. Liz happens to be one of the one of my favorite parts of my personal team here in in Nashville. And not only is Liz a brilliant real estate agent for commercial buildings, which we talked about in our last episode, but Liz also happens to be an architect. So it's almost like finding a unicorn when you find both an architect and a real estate agent all rolled up into one and it makes her super special and She's just brilliant to boot. So, Liz, welcome back. Such a pleasure. Thank to have you, you for again. having me. Yeah, so good to to see my Nashville peeps representing. It's kind of yeah. nice tonight. So, Ms. Liz, I want to just jump right into it because I'll be honest, I was super excited for this part of our episode because we worked with you as a real estate agent, but really where I feel where you shine is... Uh, as an architect, um, I fell in love with you as an architect when uh, when we first started working together. You used to write a lot of uh, posts and do interviews and talk about how you how you uh, feel, how we can create a space and how we can create emotional reactions through architecture, which as someone who owns a float center, that's what we want to do. We want to create a very special feeling and a very special experience for our clients. So I'm hoping we get a chance to uh, to jump into that tonight in a little bit in detail. Yes. Um, but I want to start by asking you, with, let's talk about the basics. For someone who's never hired an architect before, maybe this is something brand new to them. How do you find a good architect? How, what, oh, that's Where do tough. you look? Yeah. So uh, you, to start, I mean, go on social media or go to your sphere of people, who have they worked with. I think personal recommendations uh, across the board in any aspect of your business are going to take you so much farther than just putting a Google search out there and saying architecture, Nashville, or whatever it is. I wouldn't even pop up on that, I don't think. Um, But get specific any architect that has experience in the health and wellness industry is probably going to be more keen to your uh, build out and maybe some of your processes or you know someone that's done a gym before someone that's done a uh, health center Uh a massage therapist anything like that they might already have some of the tools of the trade worked out and then you're not paying them to do that from scratch. Now, what are the responsibilities of an architect and what do they do on project wise? Why, why would I uh, hire an architect in the first place? So most of the time the architect for your business is going to be a necessity. Uh, At least it is here in Tennessee. If you have a commercial space, you're going to need signed and sealed and stamped architectural drawings to go through a permitting process. Sometimes you can sneak by without it uh, if you have the right detailed information. Uh, But in general, it's a codes issue. Mm -hmm. So architects are required in most states just from a permitting standpoint to make sure the 
public uh, safety and welfare are taken care of and no one's going to get injured li liability-wise. Now, as far as design goes, that's a whole different story. Uh, someone that you want to hire as your designer of your float center, if you can find an architect that takes interest in that and doesn't want to just crank out a set of construction documents for you, you are going to be able to create uh, something a lot more in-depth than what, say, someone that doesn't have any architectural training could do by themselves, even if they're a great visionary. And if I can back up, I know our first uh, location I found out in Davidson County, it's a code issue, but mm -hmm. if we had a building under 5,000 square feet, we did not necessarily have to have an architectural drawing. We could actually do some drawings and, and uh, submit those instead. Um, mm -hmm. Thankfully, I had Liz who did some beautiful drawings, um, but I'll tell you the first time we found out that we might have to have one, the biggest shock for me, now imagine here I am, first float center. I've never done any kind of build out or construction before of this, of this capacity. Um, I had really no budget. We were shoestringing it. And uh, we were talking to a contractor who we were interviewing who said, oh yeah, you might have to have uh, plans. And I'm like, oh, plans, architect. And I'm thinking, okay, that's going to cost a little bit more money. He's like, yeah. Um, so, you know, another ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000. I'm like, whoa, okay. That's like maybe, you know, at the time, like a quarter of my budget. Um, so my, the biggest, uh, the biggest thing for me was, um, the biggest takeaway for me was, uh, architects are expensive, but <laughs> well <laughs> worth it. Um, you made those beautiful drawings. We were working with a contractor and fortunately we had you there to, to really work with the contractor. Um, but that is an advantage to going ahead, paying the money, um, and getting them done right because without that without that blueprint without those drawings your contractor is kind of oh goodness yeah he fills in the blanks on himself and yeah, a lot of yeah the real estate agents will kind of fill in the blanks too yeah. and uh well that's there's one thing like any with a bit of research and, and a bit of education you, mm -hmm. you can do a drawing you have proper tools um, we did our own drawings. Actually, Matthew did all of our own drawings and they were mm -hmm. presented to the city for permits and all that. And they were identical to scale, um, mm -hmm. but it wasn't easy. It was a lot of work. We went through tons and tons and tons of designs and tons of errors and doing that. But um, it is possible to do your own blueprints mm -hmm. and designs, but it's not easy. So um, that's that's one thing. We, we did it, um, but with drawings. So Right. Awesome. Well, kudos to you all for kind of taking the leap. There are a lot of tools if you mm -hmm. really can't, you don't, you know, you just can't yeah. do the architectural fees and you can get away with just throwing together some floor plans. I know I was able to work with Mark and Amy to do that on their first space. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was just a quick kind of quick and dirty drawing and uh, it was what it was but then they mm -hmm. found out later kind of some things they weren't you know maybe not have fully planned on or some changes they had to make and uh, they and converted the a room to a yeah. another tank room later down the line and 
uh, lots of things like that that we might have done differently had we had to do drawings. But yeah. all in all, hey, I'm all about saving some money. Uh, an architect can provide you immense value if you get the right one, and uh, um, you know, or they can just stamp some drawings for you and just be as offhand as you want them to be. It's kind of a mm -hmm. a role that, as long as everybody's safe uh, and healthy and not getting stuck somewhere or falling or lawsuits. Uh, lawsuits are a big one that mm -hmm. if you are going the shoestring way and you're getting stuff permitted, the city will not save you when someone comes to sue you because you didn't have the right bar at the right height or you didn't provide a handicap accessible experience to someone who has a vendetta. And so, they, you know, it's a risk, but uh, mm -hmm. sometimes you do what you got to do. So for planning for, so like I said, the, the big thing for me was like a, a sticker shock. If you're planning for an architect and you want to make sure that you're hiring um, someone that's going to take care of all the things that are necessary. Like I said, I'm going by here in the state of Tennessee. If it's mm -hmm. over 5,000 square feet, we're right. required mm -hmm. to, to have a lot of that. Um, how much should someone budget for an architect? What should we expect? Because I was, I kind of got sh sticker shock the first time around. The 10%, at least here in Tennessee, is, I'd say, a, a nice, easy thing to put into the budget. It's your budget goes up or you get... Uh, uh, feedback from your contractor that materials or interior design or whatever it is is going to increase your budget or you find out something, go ahead and add that 10% in. A lot of architects, if they specialize in wellness centers or they have some of the elements in place or you've worked with them before, like I offer my clients kind of that all-in-one service. So I'm not always looking at the 10%. I'm looking at, well, we're going to sign the lease and all this other stuff. So I can kind of cut my fees and offer a discount. Mm -hmm. But 10% is a good, good idea. Most architecture firms won't give you a nice round number like that. So what you want to look for there is that they have the aspects of the design process that you want. How many revisions do you get to go through with an architecture firm before the final drawing and construction set and there's uh, different phases of that process that um, you've got schematic design, design development, uh, construction documents, post-construction. There's lots of different uh, phases that an architecture firm might want to take you through and uh, really read through that and see what kind of options you have just like if you would design your website. You know, how many revisions do you get? What if you change your mind and you want to add a whole nother float room? How are they going to charge you? What What's that look like? Get those good. fees up front. Good thing to keep in mind. That actually happened to me in my last, uh, when we were looking at this last building. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, they, they brought in an expert to deal with the ventilation. So here's something interesting. We were dealing with an architectural firm. They didn't understand float tanks. They didn't know what float tanks were it was a lot there was an educational process mm -hmm. and they ended up bringing in an engineer and of course it having is. a specialist coming in and doing some additional work I think added about eight thousand 
to our bottom our it bottom was quite lines. a bit. Um, architects usually don't keep all of their consultants in-house. Right. Uh, for instance, I got, I'll have a structural engineer that handles structural stuff. I'll have an MP&E or mechanical plumbing and electrical engineer that handles those drawings, uh, especially when you do get into commercial projects. It's uh, better for everybody's that the architect's not trying to also do plumbing and structural calculations or mechanical weight system calculations. Leave that to the experts. So yeah. we were we were working with an engineer on that last uh, project that was unwilling to kind of change change anything to make it work. Uh, because he had been sued before uh, based on some uh, molds and ventilation issues. And so he over-designed the system for us. And no matter how much uh, screaming I did and we did that this yeah. wasn't a solution that we could even work, um, he was unwilling to stamp anything that might make him be sued again. I think anybody... Any architecture firm or architect that's worked in the medical field at all is going to be able to take great care of you because mm -hmm. they understand uh, the systems, the health requirements, the codes. That's their specialty. They're going to make sure you have the best facility for your needs, and they're going to be able to do that a lot more inexpensively than, say, an architecture firm that just does big re box retail or an architecture firm that just does restaurants or, you know, a medical type of architecture firm would be fabulous. So that stuff was hard for me. It was, uh, it was a difficult process. It was overwhelming mm -hmm. at times. And I was very grateful to have, uh, have you be part of it and also guide me through it. It was, a uh, certainly a, a plus for me, but the fun part really and yeah. the part that we think about a lot as float center owners is creating this special experience and the reason I love you so much is I remember you telling me one time that archi the, the architecture and the way that you create a space can actually uh, can actually affect someone's perception and emotions mm -hmm. and so tell me a little bit about your process and what you look for and what you think about when you look at a space and you're getting ready to design it. Sure. Well, thank you for asking me that question. That's something that I'm really impassioned about as an architect. I think that a lot of times architects kind of get pigeonholed into just cranking out drawings and you see a lot of ugly stuff, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> That's not for lack of trying. Sometimes everything else happens. But if you, if it's okay with you, do you mind if I share the story I told you earlier today no, about no. kind of how my first experience with a uh, large altering architectural moment for me? I was in school and I went to the. We went to D.C. to look at all the beautiful architecture in D.C. And we were on embassy row and we were going into each embassy and kind of looking at their different architectural styles and uh, just getting a sense of that. And 
Embassy Row is right downtown in D.C. I mean, it's in the thick of all the noise and the energy and the buses and everything else. And we went into the Finnish embassy, and I just felt like I got beamed into another country, into the middle of this peaceful wooded oasis, and it was quiet. And there were trees, and I felt like I was on a retreat somewhere out, out in the woods. It was amazing. And I really learned from that that the architecture can have the power to transform uh, what you're feeling, and, uh, but what you're sensing, and then how all the good and the bad stuff about your emotional state, so to speak. So I've done a lot with that, and I always bring that back into my designs. I think the most powerful part of designing, whether you're designing a graphic or you're designing a website or a piece of architecture three-dimensionally, is the story behind it. And really getting clear on creating a story, and that can then bleed through in other ways. So, Can you give an example of that? So a lot of people, we're, we're in the Bible Belt, uh, so a lot of people have had some form of experience with religious architecture, mm-hmm. and a religious architecture is traditionally designed with moments of pause, energy, and breath, or, you know, spiritual moments, you know, you come in through the double doors and you go down the long aisle. And you've got the kind of the waves on either side of you and you go through that procession and then say you go up and take communion. I know this is a really weird thing to get all religious on it, but you have that moment of pause where you're supposed to think about a certain thing and then you go down the side aisle Mm -hmm. as you exit and go back to your place in the mass. And that's a story that the architecture is forcing you to do. Had it just been like, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll see different things, but I'd say religious architectural in any capacity is, has the fundamental design cues uh-huh. that, at least for me, relate the most to a spiritual or healing experience. Think of your favorite places. Um, what is it about those spaces that give you that joy or that pause or the ah, relaxation? Is it the sound? Is it the light? Is it the energy? You know, I can get a totally different energy going to a concert downtown than I can going to a concert in someone's backyard. Mm -hmm. What creates that? And then if you can mimic those elements in your space, then you're creating your own story. And that's the really cool part about hiring a a great architect is they'll be able to create that story with you and really guide you through how you want your clients to experience your center and your uh, experience floating that connects with their environment. It's really cool thing. Mm-hmm. Long Can answer. You, <laughs> yeah, it's a great answer. 
and it's pretty amazing um, what you can do. We were talking a little bit earlier today about some things that enhance an experience and things that might take away from an experience, mm-hmm. um, but yet we may not be conscious of why we feel it's a good experience or why it's not. Can you give me some ideas of things that you would, like I know one, I'm thinking of one right now, and I hope it's the first one you say, things that that actually feel that are disruptive that maybe other people wouldn't notice, but you would, of course, um, things that are disruptive in the architecture or oh. in the way that we've created space that people so might get on. I notice of. when things don't line up, <laughs> but that's just a little OCD bit of me. Um, when things aren't centered or just slightly off, uh, even if you're not conscious of it, you probably... A lot of people may or may not notice it, but they probably can sense it in some capacity. And and different people will sense different things more strongly. So different people have different preferences when it comes to noise or visual activity. You know, do you find it distracting or do you find it calming? You know, some people can work in coffee shops, other people can't. Some people have to listen to music. Some people, I can't talk and listen and type at the same time, you know. I, but I can, I like looking at everybody and it kind of energizes me when I'm working. So that'll be based on preferences. Mm-hmm. I know y'all had a, uh, the big thing whenever we were designing your first center was the hair dryers. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> How do we like get people clean and drying their hair and uh, not break the chain and the experience? Mm-hmm. And how do we do that? So we were really sensitive at the beginning on yeah. our first one. And I know on the second one we designed, we learned from all of our mistakes as it's good to do in life. And we were trying to figure out, okay, how do we make pods so that people can come out of their float in a peaceful, into a peaceful, non-energized environment, take their time to wake up. You yeah. Know, not to wake up, but just to take time to be at peace with that feeling before stepping out into uh, another area that might be, have more energy or more people or more sense you know sensory aspects that you don't want to jog anybody out of a blissful experience you want it to kind of ease them back into the real world and I, I found it interesting when we were developing that that space now my float Nashville so tiny it's extraordinarily tiny and it was very hard to you know you kind of we, we did the best we could with what we had which mm-hmm. to your credit People are amazed all the time at how small it is and how good it feels and how cozy it feels. And it was, you know, really to your your design of the space. Um, and you had very little to work with. But when we were looking at the second location, when, you know, we have this massive mm-hmm. space, it was uh, the things that I remember that you put into place where you were layering the um, the height of the mm-hmm. ceiling. So people were coming out into a smaller, like a low ceiling, and then they'd walk into an area where the ceiling is a little bit higher mm-hmm. and bigger. And then they, and they were walking out into the main area. And like you said, we created these pods in that, you know, you were walking out of the room of your float, out of the door of your float room, 
but there was still, you were still in that low ceilinged area and you still walked through another, it was almost like an archway mm-hmm. that was kind of shielded, half shielded that door and it created a very cozy feeling. So there was that pause, there was that, um, that gentle uh, introduction. Coming yeah. Out. I think a lot of people forget about the three-dimensional aspect of what your ceilings can really do to define your spaces. Even if you're, um, even if you have a grid ceiling that you hate, uh, you can do some really nice things with that. Uh, get custom, or not custom, but you can get metal inserts. Metals, maybe not the good word. You can uh, drop certain zones that then feel cozier. Wrap them with the you know different textures. You can use wood and different materials to create each special area or zone that's interesting and uh, not overwhelming to the senses. Yeah, you know, that was one thing I remember we did out in the, because the building that we were looking at had extraordinarily high ceilings, and you had some things designed in where um, they were, they were blocks of, and I don't know if they were really wood, but you talked Mm -hmm. about, okay, we can wrap these, give it some texture, and then hang it from the ceiling, so we had even these multi-level areas going out, and it was a very inexpensive design element from our standpoint but right you're yeah just the kind of feel putting together some wood and sticking it together hanging it from something that's really inexpensive it doesn't take much and uh it create you know creates a different zone or a different uh experience within that room it, cha- it changes the feel and yeah. what do you want it that to be some people like the really modern sleek style one thing we do with all our clients is we we love Pinterest and I like to go through with everybody. Okay, what is what kind of feelings are you trying to evoke? Uh, do you want this to be upscale and luxurious? Do you want this to be really all natural? Uh, um, what are other buildings that resonate with you that you're like, man, I, if I could float in that building that would be cool or do you want it to be just like your home and you're taking a bubble bath like tell your architect what you your vision is and let them create it and Mm -hmm. uh you'd be amazed once architect architects love designing and then they get stuck into the kind of the boring architectural world where you're just cranking out construction drawings and sure some of that's fine at least but for me the the passion and the fun comes into getting to design something unique. And Mm -hmm. that's what architecture really is, is a unique thing. I don't think it's architecture if it could be reproduced and put anywhere else. And this, I want to talk a little bit about um, something that I also find fascinating with the work that you've done, not just for us, but as we're we're talking and moving forward, um, is the lighting and how much lighting can impact. And this is, by the way, one of Lance's passions as well, Um, trying to, can you give any hints or tips or tricks for what to think about when you're looking at a space and considering lighting lighting i just say uh you cannot have certain lighting in a in a healing area 
fluorescence. I'm sure this is like a no brainer. Out. No brainer for everybody. Oh, man. Get rid what of the bummer, fluorescence. Right? But uh, you know, again, it goes back to that atmosphere. If you want a cozy environment, you want to use warmer colored lights. Uh, I know we were talking about one of your rooms at Float Nashville feeling sterile. Mm-hmm. We might be able yeah. to just get you a orange bulb to put in there and kind of put a nice warm glow on everything. We tried that, but I'd love for you to stop by and look at that room because Mark has threatened <laughs> to paint the tile we in don't, the shower. We don't want that. Mm-mm. No, um, ma'am. <laughs> so lighting can have a big aspect. I'd say the best lighting is the lights that you can't see directly. If you think about um, overly dilating your pupils, you shine a light at you know you <laughs> shine a light in it that's really jarring, and having lights that you can't see the bulb is mm-hmm. cool so I know we've been to a couple of places yeah. where you hide them in coves uh, yeah. so they just you never see the actual bulb itself you just see the glow that's really cool for float centers I love the changing lights and float centers I think those are a lot of fun if they're kind of like water going back and forth you can really play with play with that have fun and um, find some cool fixtures that are fun to look at I mean bubble uh, bubbles are everywhere in lighting mm. you can find so many water analogies with lighting or clouds or yeah anything there's such cool stuff I do not uh, lighting can change a room faster than paint can mm. um, and it's cheaper usually usually yeah unless it's a really small confined space but lighting can have make or break a space for you and if you're struggling with any part of the design uh, maybe see if you can focus in on what kind of lighting you want and it'll really dial it in for you can you give some suggestions? We talked you 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 talked a little bit about the church and and how mm-hmm. the architecture is designed to create these places for pause and breath. Um, mm-hmm. If you were designing a float center, just in general, um, is there anything that you would specifically do if you were trying to create these little pauses and the and the things? What are some things that you would build in or how would you divide the space up and sure. um, yeah if you could give some insight into that that would be great so in general I'd say um, you want as much energy by the door and as close to the front door and the sidewalk and your funnel in as you possibly can get because that might get you more sales uh, hey, a bunch of people hanging out outside your building. What are they doing? Oh, what's that floating thing? You know, you get that energy as close to outside, right by the door and the vestibule as you can. Mm-hmm. And uh, make it open so that people can chat and talk and see everything. You want a wide range of vision there. The wider your range of vision and your perspective goes the more energy you can soak in and that that's just like from talking noise movement everything you can see more you can 
there's more going on. And it just happens that way. As you get to your greeter or your person that's checking you in and checking you out, you kind of want to slow down a lot. You generally don't want to... Uh, a lot of energy by that person because it'll make you feel a little unsettled. Okay. Uh, kind of think about restaurant hostesses. If they're swamped and kind of like, oh, okay, how many, how many? And they're looking around and they're trying to check one person out with a to-go order. And we had lunch today and she was kind of overwhelmed. If someone came into your float center and had that experience, it's a little off-putting going into the zone and it's definitely off-putting trying to get out of there in a easy collected way so mm -hmm. I don't know if y'all do y'all take payment before they go in mostly no actually uh while we do take credit cards to hold um mm -hmm. the appointments we actually don't until it's time to check out yeah. and there's some controversy with that the reason we do it is especially for first-time floaters oh, yeah. we want to give them the chance to float before we offer the three series so that sure. they make the best decision for them um, but I know that we've gotten into the habit if we see a member come in or something we do because we know what that transaction is going to be like we do try to catch them ahead sure. of time so that when they're done they can just leave. So we do it when we can. Lance, what what do you all do? Yeah, we we take payment after as well you for that after. exact same reason. I gotcha. I, I was there, just curiosity. Yeah. Um, there might be opportunity there. I don't. I don't know. I'm with you. I think in certain instances it'd probably work or not work. But um, so, anyways, you don't want them to be in a frenzy because that's your first or your last you know, your first impression or your last goodbye. Yeah. And uh, you don't want it to be goodbye the last time. So you want that to also be a positive checkout experience as they go back out into the world. Um, as you get back into your center, I think, in starting to break up the spaces into smaller and smaller chunks, longer hallways, a little more peace and quiet. You don't want a really wide hallway where people are walking back and forth. Uh, in a quick fashion, you want things to slow down, become darker, ease you into the experience. Even if it's uh, just kind of lit on the floor, you create moments of pause. You can do that by, here's a moment of pause. This is where you access your robes. Or here's a moment of pause. Uh, this is the vestibule before you go into the room or little tables, you know, with, um, it could be fun stuff. It could be swag. It could be like meditational quotes. I mean, who, who knows? And put some marketing out there that's subtle, that creates a level of pause for you that someone might, if they're rushing you know, if they're kind of coming in and coming out slowly, they'll notice it and mm -hmm. take it. Nice. Or reflect and saying, on it. Yeah. Or reflect on it. Yeah. And that would be, uh, like you said, I liked the idea that you gave uh, where there's some sort of meditational yeah. uh, slips of paper or something to think about. Or I know some float centers have in their hallways areas where with like a glass board or something where people can actually write about their float on it. And it's a moment of reflection before they walk back out into the, oh, yeah. into the relaxation. And the last place we had 
uh, little seating areas where you could just mm-hmm. kind of sit and hang out for a minute and uh, journal. I know y'all have the journals at Float Nashville mm-hmm. that are so amazing and that comfy couch. Nothing like sitting out, you know, and just, ooh, because uh, some float, floats are intense mm-hmm. or exhausting or you um, – or you just can't you can't go out. You know, you just need to take a minute. And then creating those opportunities for your clients will really go wonders if you do that in your space. Yeah. Um, beautiful, beautiful stuff. I am I am grateful because sometimes I know that I am not the most um, cognizant of <laughs> what makes a space feel good? I know if it makes me feel good or bad, but I think we, we had talked about this a little bit earlier where I was at a spa and mm. it just didn't, I didn't feel relaxed in the relaxation room. And my friend who'd come to pick me up, he was kind of fidgeting around. And um, as we walked out of the room, which by the way, the the couch was like right in front of the doorway. Yeah. So you have to, whether you're walking in or out of the room, you had to walk around this couch. And uh, he's like, oh, it was driving me nuts being in there. The floor was uneven. And he was, I guess what caught his eye was this little... Um, this little space in the corner where the floor and the wall weren't meeting correctly and there were some cracks and, um, and he had noticed that right away and it was driving him nuts. Uh, he's like you in a way that he doesn't, he doesn't have those <laughs> things line up. Yeah. Things lining up is very important. And, uh, yeah, I hadn't noticed it, but yeah, it just was not, it, it was a beautiful room. They had the nice water, but it, there was just something about it that just wasn't, wasn't feeling relaxed and, right. and beautiful. So we covered, we talked about lighting. We talked mm-hmm. about um, creating different heights. Is there anything else that you would say we need to look at textures of things or um, anything else that you can think of that would be really important? We were talking about a lot of sound. I mean, our main focus oh, was the sound mm-hmm. aspect of the build out. And uh, we came up with a special detail for. For your float rooms that had offset studs, which wouldn't be the norm, but to so that no sound could transfer right through the stud wall into the next float room. Having your architect kind of detail some of those things out for you, if they know sound is a big concern, uh, say, hey, you know, we can't have this sound coming through. It's going to come through if it can just go through the stud wall. What can we do to to help that they can do a lot for you the plumbing is the biggest aspect for any build out numbers uh you're looking at your plumbing can make or break your build out and then as we found out your proper ventilation can also (laughs) make or break so really spending some extra time on those uh mechanical plumbing and electrical uh electrical with the lighting yeah, yeah. Is is there anything that we should be having conversations about with our architects? Um, you went into it knowing what a float center was at the, when we started developing the second location. Um, but is there anything that, you know, if we go to someone, they have no clue what a float tank is or what a float center is. What are some ways that we can educate or what are some things that we need to make sure that we tell them to help them sure. do the best thing possible? Well, I'd say architects are visual people in general. So if you can provide them visually what it is, um, 
say you've got all your friends in the industry and you know what you've got videos or uh, virtual tours of their mm-hmm. spaces or you have a uh, you have a place that you've been before that you want to recreate but as a float center give those visuals to your architect and they will it'll be so much faster than any description that you could give them you can tell me you want something peaceful and quiet and I don't know I really don't know what that means to you until you show me what it means to you. So show them everything. You're not going to, I mean, you're only going to make them angry if you're changing everything. (laughs) So show them everything at the beginning and you'll be, (laughs) you can say, hey, well, I really, I mean, I thought we were going in this direction and then you'll be fine. And then I'll be all right. Yeah. Show them other float centers. You know, that's a good thing. We we have this uh, resource called the Float Collective, which is on Facebook. It's mm-hmm. a Facebook group. And this might be a nice little uh, uh, assignment for people in there to do some, some virtual tours of their float center right. so that if somebody is going in and they... They have we have a thread with all these virtual tours that they can show. It might be kind of nice. Yeah. Um, hmm, I'm gonna have to talk to uh, well Lance. I can talk to you. Maybe we'll have to get on that. Uh, I say we, and what I really mean is, hey Lance, here's some more work for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, you, know, we had one question I I had put out that we were talking to you tonight on speaking of Float Collective, and one of the questions that came up, um, it seems to fit in really well right now. Um, And this is from uh, Tyler, and I'm going to read this out for you. He said, he says, I'm about to sign a formal lease for my space. The space is brand new construction and will share a demising wall with an adjacent suite. In my letter of intent, I've included, quote, landlord should make every reasonable effort and expense to limit potential noise from the co-tenant. We talked a little bit about that, by the way, in our last episode with Liz. Um, But he goes on to say, I've talked to the landlord about the interest he's had in the adjoining unit. The interests are a restaurant and a cell phone business. My question is, how should the demising wall be constructed? Double stud wall or cement blocks? I prefer cement blocks. How would you address that, So the demising wall is going to have to be fire rated, and that's going to limit the construction because the fire rating has to go all the way through. So fire can't jump from the kitchen or the bar in one area over uh, over through the joists or the ceiling and into your space. So the construction codes are going to be pretty limited. I think uh, the wall itself won't really be something you can negotiate because it's going to be X firewall, you know, X rated firewall, one hour, two hour, three hour, whatever it is. Uh, for and codes. that's a codes that's thing? That's a codes thing. Okay. Uh, however, when they build the demising wall, you'd want to make sure to put in your plans that extra layer of stud wall and then insulate that noise-wise or add the specific sound protecting boards that you can. Um, you could... If it's a brand new space and they haven't developed the plans for the adjacent space yet, uh, you could see if it makes sense for them to naturally put restrooms or some quieter functioning areas along that wall as an opportunity. 
but you're really getting into kind of some tricky conversations that it's just better to take care of yourself and uh, try to get that extra sound insulation on your side of the wall. So that's another good job or another good opportunity for a uh, real estate, a commercial real estate yeah. agent to step in and really negotiate for yeah. you for sure. Make sure uh, it's not a ridiculous request or that yeah. we're going to like say something off-putting that might hurt you later down the line. Understandable. Well, Lance, do you have any additional questions for Liz tonight as pertaining to architecture or creating a space that is that is good for floating? No, I think we uh, we covered quite a few things, quite a few things I've done, including, you know, trying to drop the ceilings to create that mm -hmm. comfier using lighting, painting colors, um, things like that. I think it's, it's great. And there's a lot of great information here for uh, um, people who are just getting started and uh, wanting to put their foot in the door. So thank you. Do y'all have any pain points with your spaces that you wouldn't have known about? Had you, you know, now that you've been in them, because everybody finds stuff after you've been in a space that didn't quite work the way you wanted it. Is there anything not to do? Ours is just, our space is just too big and too open. Uh. <laughs> sort of the opposite problem. Amy <laughs> opposite has, problem, so. yeah. Um, we've, we're working hard at trying to divide the space up without closing the space in. So mm. just using different creative um, dividing walls and using plants and and different things like that to sort of divide the space up to so we could still have multiple conversations on the go without being awkward or yeah. anything like that. But, uh, plants are a great opportunity. Plants, any kind of screen walls, textiles, uh, anything that's going to block but still allow some light through... You can do some great stuff with wood. I mean, just look at HGTV. They put wood on everything, and it's great. <laughs> throw up some wood. It'll be good. Yeah. yeah that's what I need to do. <laughs> throw up some wood in my space. It'll be good. <laughs> waterfalls um, get really expensive. Put some waterfalls yeah. in there. Waterfalls. <sighs> yeah, I, I, I keep asking Mark for a big waterfall in our, our lobby. He just looks at me and rolls his eyes. I don't I'm think not, I'm getting a waterfall. I'm designing a waterfall in your lobby, whether he wants it or not. Thank you. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you the other thing that um, one of my pain points, being a small space, we did not, well, of course, not that we had much choice in this place, but um, having space for our employees, this sounds crazy, but employees keep like their purse and their coats at the front yeah. desk or well sometimes they'll toss the coats in the kitchen that'll be fine but you know if it's just a jacket or a sweater they'll toss it over the back of the chair and they have their purse underneath the thing and it's just messy it's just yeah it feels messy all the time we just don't have that i know at the next space i really want a closet right off the place that number one we can keep all of our hospitality supplies and our our paper supplies, but also that our clients have, or our, our employees have a place to put their stuff so that there's that separation. There's that ritual where, okay, I'm putting my purse away. I'm putting my coat away. I'm locking that up and I'm coming out to the desk and there's no distractions. Yes. So it's not even just even though it can get messy. It's there's that, there's that break, that pause for them as well. That designation, um, kind of an energy management practice where, okay, this is here's where I'm at space. now. This is a workspace. This is for work and then. Or this is I'm for clients. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this is for yeah. me. 
kind of a separation yeah. for that. And having and building in some personal space for you as the owners is also critical. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just want an office. I don't care if it's a closet. I, I really, um, that is so important. And Lance, I think you have, I don't know if you ever get to leave and go into your own personal space, but I know as an owner, having that space where I can go in and close the door, which I don't have right now, is so important for my own, number one, my own personal energy management, but also management of the business um, and getting things done and um, just having that, that closed space, um, it's so necessary. And I, I, we didn't have the luxury of that in our current space, but next, next one, one, next one, salt storage, salt storage. I know. And I always feel guilty paying for storage. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's going to be so wonderful. I can't wait. I like bringing uh, people into the process of what that looks like. People are fascinated. Like, oh man, I'm looking at all this salt. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it clicks. <laughs> it's like watching people bake or make food. It's so much cool. Everybody loves hibachi because they get to see it happening. You know, you don't have to hide all everything unless it's just not very glamorous. But mm-hmm. bring, um, bring some of those aspects that uh, can make you feel more, maybe a little more vulnerable at first about mm-hmm. what's going on and... Bring those into the design and share those as part of your story. It might be really cool. Yep. Going right back to that story. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Miss Liz. (laughs) What a pleasure to have you and to be able to share you and so much good information both last week and this week. Uh, really appreciate your time and your energy and your willingness to be so transparent. Uh, where can everyone find you online? Where's some good places to find you? Please, please, please connect with us on social media at Southern Athena. You can look at our website, uh, southernathena.com. And I'm a personal relationship kind of girl. So shoot me an email or a phone call, uh, elizabeth at southernathena.com. Um, love to talk on the phone, so I don't know why, but, uh, <laughs> you can find our number everywhere. Give us a call if you have any questions and I can't wait to connect. Thank Tell you us your so stories. Yeah. So want to tag me on something and I, you know, we, we want to interact. So that's awesome. Thank you Thank so, you so much. Me. And thank you all. Thank you, Lance. Uh, Thank you, Producer Brian and Dylan, who was not able to make it this evening, but uh, appreciate all your work. And I believe Emily does our show notes. You can find all that information and more, artofthefloat.com. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Take care of you. Art of the Float 